Well, let's take our Bibles and open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. In his grand exposition of the gospel, the Apostle Paul has explained first the heart of the gospel in chapters 1 through 4. And at the heart of this gospel, that is the power of God for salvation, is justification by faith. We are brought into a right relationship with God. We escape his wrath only when we receive by faith his righteousness that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ, in Jesus' death and resurrection. In chapters 5 through 8, then, Paul reveals the promise of the gospel. Just as we are justified, already standing in a right relationship with God, so we have the promise of the gospel, that is, the assurance of glory. Being justified now in this life means being glorified in eternity because God's sovereign purposes cannot fail. And we have victory because nothing can separate us from his love. But this leads to a dilemma because if God's love is indestructible and his word cannot fail and his sovereign purposes always are accomplished, then what has happened to the nation of Israel? What are we supposed to do with this people of God who to whom God gave a covenant, called out from among the nations to himself. And Paul takes chapters 9 through 11 to issue a vindication of the gospel. This is Israel's hope. By demonstrating that God's purposes and God's integrity are beyond accusation, Paul shows that Israel indeed has a future in God's plans. God is not done with them. God will be true to his word. And now in chapters 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul lays out the work of the gospel. What the gospel effects in the lives of God's people, and that is transformed living. To be justified, standing in a right relationship with God, means to be promised Glory, that we will one day be glorified, but now we live in this in-between time, having already been justified before God and yet waiting to be glorified. How do we live life now? And so Paul devotes this final section of Romans to Christian conduct. How the person who is made right with God actually lives life. We wouldn't say that there are no instructions at all in chapters 1 through 11, but chapters 12 through 15 are primarily exhortation. What does the grind of day to day living look like for the believer? Now, some of the exhortations are general such as the need to humbly serve each other according to the way that the Holy Spirit has equipped and empowered us to do so. We need to love each other 
In chapter 12, Paul even gives contours and definition to what this love looks like. He tells us how to respond to earthly authorities. And he then comes back to love and shows how it is the fulfillment of the law, the very law that the Lord had given to the people of Israel is fulfilled by love in the church. Other exhortations address specific challenges in the Roman congregation and yet with great effect for us. For example, not condemning others or causing others to stumble. He addresses conflict over matters of conscience and the need to receive one another as Christ has received us. In our text today then, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul first reveals the fundamental and crucial attitude for every Christian. Join me in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, build us up with your word today. Lead us to a greater devotion to you. Guard us from the lie that there is anything in all of life more fulfilling, anything that brings greater happiness than walking with you by faith. Amen. What we have here is a summary of Christian living. What we have here is one of those scriptures that gives us a, one of the most foundational, basic truths for living out the Christian life. And actually, every one of us should know these verses by heart. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, form the beginning point for all of these exhortations that follow, because the first step in living out the power of the gospel is devoting your entire life to God giving your entire life to him. For the church to live in humility and to serve one another according to the Spirit's gifts, for the people of God to respond rightly to the hostile world in which we live, for us to, to relate rightly to earthly authorities, for us to love one another in the midst of colliding consciences, our lives must be completely God's. Because of all that he has done, your life is to be completely God's. So at the foundation of the Christian life is this joy-filled abandonment to our Lord and Savior. So I want to give you then three facets of a life that is completely God's. Three facets or aspects of a life that is completely God's. First of all, the life that is completely God's is a life saved. It is a life that is saved. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, 
Paul says, I exhort you. This is the word from which we get exhort, encourage, comfort. I exhort you, or in this context, probably I urge you. It's something somewhere between a command and a request. I urge you. There is passion in the appeal, and there is necessity for us to respond. And you can see with the word therefore that Paul is basing his appeal on the salvation that has been revealed in chapters 1 through 11. In fact, some some come along to, to Romans chapter 12 and say this is the dividing point of the book. There are two large sections of the book, chapters 1 through 11, chapters 12 through 16. This is definitely a, a hinge, if you will. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul has, has exposed, he's brought out this gospel in chapters 1 through 11, and now the Bible calls for the right response to all that God has done in saving you. All that God has accomplished by rescuing sinners from his wrath. And all that God has done, Paul captures in this word mercies. Mercies. So God's mercies are the grounds or the, the reason for his appeal. It is God's mercies that captivate and overwhelm us as believers. It is his mercies that move us to respond a life that is completely God's is a saved life, a life that has been rescued, delivered by God's mercies. Paul has already used mercy in Romans in a couple of significant places. In chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, he said, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because God elects is God unjust? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so that it, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Belonging to God, being saved, does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here, mercy is God's election in operation. You might even say that bestowing mercy where it is not deserved is how God elects. When God chooses, when God saves somebody, he bestows mercy on them. It is the bestowing of that mercy that brings them out of a state of rebellion and enmity against God. In chapter 11, verses 30 and through 32, Paul wrote, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Now, that's Israel's disobedience. They rejected God. They rejected the covenant. They rejected their Messiah. You at one time were disobedient, but have received mercy. Israel's disobedience didn't lead to your worthiness or my worthiness. It led to God's mercy 
on us. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So you see, God's mercy then is his sovereign compassion on sinners who deserve only wrath instead of his kindness. You have received mercy. It is God's saving work out of his compassion for his enemies. That's what his mercy is. So with his sovereign mercies then, God has saved you and has already claimed your whole life as his own. So in one sense, your life is already completely God's. You already belong to him. But God is now calling for a decisive response from us who have known his mercy. Not as a repayment. This isn't like God's mercy functions as a credit card and he has gone ahead and credited forward to your account some disobedience, and now you have to pay him back with obedience. No, God's mercy of justification, God's mercy of glory, God's mercy of security is given you a new identity, has made you a new person. And it is defined by the life of the Spirit who lives in you. He has given you a new family because of adoption. These are the mercies that Paul is talking about. God's mercies not only claim your life, but they equip you and they empower you to live accordingly. As he said in Romans 6, verse 11, to consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 12, Paul is now picking up, really, with what he had said in chapter 6, and is saying, here is how you consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. God's mercy has claimed you. A life that is completely God's is a life that is saved. It's a a life that is claimed by God's mercy. Secondly, the life that is completely God's is a life offered. It's a life offered. I appeal to you, I urge you to present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now, Paul, of course, is, is drawing upon the common religious practice of offering sacrifices to explain what it means to devote ourselves completely to God. Now, pagan religions, I say common religious practice because pagan religions would have had sacrificial systems also. But Paul is really pointing to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which was a rather elaborate system that included daily, monthly, and annual sacrifices some of which were individual sacrifices and some of them which were national sacrifices observed by the entire nation of Israel. There were sacrifices as well at all feasts and celebrations. Most were animal sacrifices. 
Some were accompanied by grain offerings or drink offerings. There were whole burnt offerings for sin, sin offerings for unintentional sins, trespass offerings for intentional sins. Then there were guilt offerings, cereal offerings, drink offerings, peace offerings, free will offerings, thanks offerings, vow offerings. There were all kinds of sacrifices. To work through all of those, you had to know the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of these were offered as acts of devotion to God. In fact, one of the great one of the great cries of the prophets throughout the Old Testament is how the the nation would offer these sacrifices heartlessly with no devotion to God. How the nation would just go through the motions of keeping up this religious system, this sacrificial system, without ever surrendering their lives or their hearts to God. Because of God's mercies in the gospel, we are to each present, to to bring forth, to give over our lives to God as a sacrifice. Paul here uses the word bodies, present or offer up your bodies. He means by this word, our whole selves. To present your body is to present your whole person. And some of our English Bibles even translate this word yourselves, present yourselves to God. This is not simply then just your physical body. In verse 2, he mentions the mind. And so some take this to mean that Paul is talking about your physical body and your, your mind, your mental person, so your material person and your immaterial person. But really, it's not a contrast between material and immaterial. With bodies, he means all of you, material and immaterial. Your whole person is to be offered as a sacrifice. Paul chooses the word bodies because it is our bodies that live in the world and interact with the world. It is what represents the whole person in this life. So there is to be no part of you that is withheld from God. Nothing. You must offer all of you. And he uses three adjectives to describe what the sacrifice is. It is, first of all, a living sacrifice. We know that Christ was the final and perfect sacrifice. And that by dying, he fulfilled the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and brought it to an end. Jesus did not do away with, destroy the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He took on the entire sacrificial system in himself and fulfilled it and brought it to an end. This is why we do not offer animal sacrifices. So instead of offering sacrifices that honor God through dying, we offer our whole selves as sacrifices that honor God through living and moving and serving. 
we are a living sacrifice. We are also to be a holy sacrifice, holy, set apart as something sacred. Your whole life is to be set apart to God. God's mercy did not just save part of you. God's mercy did not just save your soul, but leave your body to judgment. You say, no, wait a second, I die. That's right. But God will raise you out of the grave and will glorify your body. Your body will be refit for eternity. That's the teaching of the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians 15. God does not just save part of you. He saves all of you. And so we do not just give him part of us, we give him all of us. All of us is set apart to him. God's mercy set you apart for himself, set set you apart from his wrath and destruction to life and to joy and to meaning. And now you and I are to set ourselves apart from sin and from self-worship to worshiping God. And pleasing Him. So we are a living sacrifice. Your life is to be a holy sacrifice. Your life is also to be a sacrifice acceptable to God. Or pleasing. Pleasing to God. And Paul is here building on this image of a sacrifice. Giving off a pleasing aroma as it was burned on the altar. For example, Exodus chapter 29, verse 18. Burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. This description is repeated throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. That these offerings are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the offering of a sacrifice to God was like a fragrance, like a a steak grilling, or like bread baking for us. The same way a fragrance pleases, the same way it delights, offering your whole self to God is an aroma to Him in which He delights. In fact, an offering pleases God only when it is consumed in the fire. Our lives are to be consumed with God. And I think that's why Paul chooses this practice, this imagery. Because our lives are to be consumed. Your life is not your own. My life is not my own. Paul even summarizes that offering our bodies as sacrifices is our spiritual worship. It is our spiritual worship. Now, that's what our ESVs say, our English Standard Versions. Now, just so you know, there are different Greek words that come out in English as the word worship. There are three important ones. The word in Romans 12.1 is the word that emphasizes worship as priestly service. It's the idea of worship being everything that a priest would do in in preparing an animal, putting it on the sacrifice, actually taking the animal's life, all of the things that a priest would do in his mediation, in serving in the temple, 
All of those things were considered worship. It is the same word that Paul uses to describe humanity's idolatry back in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So this word describes a life that is surrendered to the service of the one being worshipped. What a reversal. In Romans chapter 1, the entire human race is described as those who worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, suppressing the truth. You and I used to belong to the mass of humanity that worshipped the creature living in rebellion against God. Now, now we worship God. We worship Him. When we think of worship, we typically think of, if I say, hey, I'm going to worship, what do you think of? We typically think of singing, music, prayer, some sort of expression, and usually when we're gathered. Now, those things are elements of worship. Those are worshipful. That is worshiping. But worship is all-encompassing for the Christian. It's everything you do. Your entire life is viewed by God as worship. All of life is an expression of devotion to God. And there is no part of your life that God does not claim as His own, that is not to be offered in service to Him. Now, if you were to check the New American Standard Bible, the NAS, or the New International Version, this phrase is translated spiritual service of worship, or in the NIV, spiritual act of worship. But if you were to look at ye old King James Version, or even the new King James Version, you will find it translated your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Now, this is because the word spiritual in our ESV is the word logikane. And you may not recognize that Greek word, But it comes from one that we mostly are familiar with, and that's logos. So John chapter 1, verse 1, for example. In the beginning was the Word, the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos, the Word, was God. We know that is referring to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus who then comes and tabernacles or dwells among us, John chapter 1. This is the same word, logos. So, that's why, and I think in this case, ye old King James Version is probably on track. Reasonable or rational. Rational doesn't quite catch it. Logical, that's probably the best way to to translate this word. Your reasonable worship. Now, you might be wondering, well, why in the world would they ever put the word spiritual here? 
It's because that this word logikain is often used with the word spiritual, the Greek word for spiritual, to describe aspects of worship as other than outward and ceremonial. Now remember, I said that back in the Old Testament, one of the great cries of the prophets against the people of Israel was you are offering these sacrifices and you're checking off all the right boxes, you're jumping through all the right hoops, but your hearts are far from God. You do not love Him. You do not worship Him. And so later on then in writing and in the New Testament and sometimes out of the New Testament in literature outside the Bible, this word is often paired with the word spiritual to emphasize the need for worship to, to transcend something that is merely external, that it is something that goes to the heart of who we are. But here that word doesn't appear, so it's probably reasonable, but then we're left with, what does Paul mean by it when he says, this is your reasonable worship? It could be that he means something like, because of God's mercy, it only makes sense that you respond in this way. Offering your whole life to God is the logical end of being claimed by His mercy. It could be. But I think better is probably something like offering your whole life to God as a living sacrifice, as a holy sacrifice, as a pleasing sacrifice, must be the deliberate and decisive act of your will. It cannot just be an external act, but it is not just an internal private belief system that does not affect how you live or what you claim publicly. Such an act of worship could never be haphazard, it could never be flippant, it could never be half-hearted, it could never be thoughtless. Reasonable worship is hearing the gospel in Romans chapters 1 through 11 and concluding, God has saved me only because of his mercy and compassion that I do not deserve, that I could never purchase, that I could never manipulate, that I could never earn. And there is only one option for my life, there is only one end and goal for my life, and that is to present it to him in full, all of me. And I hold nothing back, not my finances, not my dreams, not my body, nothing. And I will harbor no sin, there will be no area of disobedience I cling to or try to tuck away in a closet. I have no agenda, I claim no rights to myself, where I go, who I marry, if I marry, what I eat. There is nothing I value more than his delight and his will, and his purposes. Reasonable worship says, you own me, 
and I am not my own. And as a sacrifice is completely consumed on the altar, so my life is completely consumed by you with no reservations, no caveats, and no exception clauses. That is presenting yourself as a sacrifice. That is reasonable worship in view of God's mercy. That's what Paul is getting at. And so worship is all-encompassing. This offering of your whole life is to give yourself to a life of worship and to see every part of your life as the devotion of worship to God. This is presenting yourself as a sacrifice. Now we'll pick up in verse 2 next time. But let me ask you this. Is your life completely God's? I understand what Paul is getting at here is not super Christianity. You understand that, right? What Paul is talking about here is not a second level of discipleship or a second level of commitment. This is fundamental. This is the foundation of a Christian life. Not something that's at, it's not the penthouse of the Christian life added on top of everything. That once you grow enough, once you become spiritually mature enough, now you give your whole life to God. Well, this is part of conversion. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his life daily, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's why Jesus said that. It's a complete, wholehearted commitment of your entire life. Is your life completely God's? I ask because we think often of God as part of our lives. We think of our spiritual life or our religion as a part of our lives. And we don't always think that Consciously, we might not say that. We might not ever describe it that way. But that's practically how we live very often. We see the things of Scripture, even worshiping God together, gathering, being in the Word, prayer. We see these things as items we schedule along with everything else in our lives, don't we? And so life is all about keeping all of these plates spinning. It's about keeping all of these things functioning. And I've got my family over here, and I've got a school over here, and I've got my job over here, and then I have this hobby or commitment over here. And, and then right in the middle of all of these things is one more plate. I've got my life with God, and I've got to keep it spinning also. So in the midst of doing everything else, there are times when I go, okay, the priority this time is to, is to participate in this church thing, or it's to read my Bible, or this, uh, you know, these months I'm going to sign up for a Bible study or a community group, and we see it as one more piece 
instead of seeing this as the center and the highest priority and through which everything else is known, experienced, and lived out. As someone who has been made right with God, as someone who has been promised glory, as someone who now, in this life, in this age, is secured by God's unfailing, indestructible love, everything in your life, all these plates that you are spinning and that I am spinning, this is not just another plate that is added. Your life is to be offered to God and consumed entirely by Him. I ask because we see our lives often as just, uh, we see our spiritual lives as a spiritual life that's one of these plates spinning. I also ask, is your life completely God's? Because this is not something you just do one time. You cannot become a Christian without doing this. But this doesn't mean that once you've done it, you never do it again. This is something that every one of us must do all the time, maybe daily. Present your bodies as sacrifices, living, holy, and pleasing to God. That's something you and I have to do every day. This is something that we have to return to every day. And so I ask you, is your life completely God's? Is it a decisive act of your will, deliberate and decisive, to give yourself to God? Or are there parts of your life, parts of your heart, parts of your thinking, parts of your behavior that you still treat as your own? Something you reserve the right to. This is what Paul is calling us to leave. This is what Paul is calling us to offer, to give up. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes these truths can feel like a duty that we must perform. And yet, Lord, there is nothing more joyful, nothing more satisfying in life than to surrender our entire selves to you and know that you are worthy, that you deserve all of us. And Lord, we ask again that you would, by your Spirit who dwells in us, enable us to see the things that we are holding on to, things that we have so far been unwilling to offer as sacrifice to you. And in one sense, Lord, because it is our joy, because you have made us new, given us new life, it isn't a sacrifice. What are we losing? We have nothing to lose and everything to gain.
by giving our whole selves to you. So, Lord, we trust you. Lord, I trust you to work in our hearts to eliminate those blind spots and to call upon us daily, to call us out, to present our bodies as sacrifices to you. And so we commit ourselves to you, Lord, and we continue now to lift voices, to pray, to partake in your supper, all that we might please you, that we might be acceptable to you. And Lord, we know that it does please you in the person of Christ. In your name, we proclaim all of these things and ask them. Amen.